Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. I've learned if I really don't like something to try and outsource it, hand it off to someone and then focus on what I do like and amplify that. Before we get into today's episode, I want to mention today's best ever partner and give you a free gift. And that partner is Fun That Flip. And they're going to be giving you a free deal analysis spreadsheet. You know who Fun That Flip is, don't you? Because you're a loyal best ever listener. They've been a sponsor on the show. Matt Rodak, the founder of Fun That Flip, has been on the podcast multiple times, giving us his insight on the online lending process. Fun That Flip provides fast, reliable funding for your house flip projects. They're an online platform, makes the application process entirely easy, and they've got a whole bunch of experts on their team who can help you get funding in 24 hours and close within as few as seven days. And all of you best ever listeners, you're getting a free spreadsheet to help you analyze your projects. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. That's fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. And you'll get a free deal analysis tool. It'll help you provide a scope of work for your projects create the scope of work, analyze the profitability of the project, or if it's not profitable, you need to know that too, and make a determination on the max purchase price. Super important. You can print out all the detailed reports and that will help you get your deals funded faster. Go to fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever. Get that free analysis tool, fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluffy stuff. With us today, Dana Bull. How you doing, Dana? Great. How are you, Joe? I'm doing well, and nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Dana. She is a real estate agent at Sotheby's International Realty. She's an investor, a landlord, and property manager. She specializes in small multifamily, and in particular, old homes built in the 17, 18, and early 1900s. She's 27 years old, works with other millennials to get started on real estate and real estate investing based in Salem, Massachusetts. With that being said, Dana, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, you pretty much nailed it on the head there. But like Joe said, I'm a young real estate investor. I got started in this when I was about 22. And I've carved out that niche where I'm just really drawn to the older homes, the historic homes. 
my youngest property was built in 1915. That's our spring chicken. But I, I just really love all the character in, in the older homes. I work mostly in Boston. I'm, I'm a North Shore. And I work with millennials and help them get started, whether it's their first condo purchase or if they want to get started with buying duplexes, triplexes, that sort of thing. You have piqued my curiosity with your focus on older homes, that's for sure. As a real estate investor, let's talk about this. How many properties do you have and what are their ages? We have six properties currently. We used to have eight. We recently sold a couple of them. The oldest one was built in 1784, and that was a condo, but everything else has been either a duplex, a triplex, or a quad. Wow. So 1784 to 1915, the one that, as you call it, your youngest property, right? Yeah. Yep. Holy cow. Okay. Let's talk about this. What is your business model with these properties? Are they buy and hold or fix and flip? They're all buy and hold. The reason why we sold two of them were we started small. We started with a condo and then we bought a two family. And then we felt like, and when I say we, it's my husband and I, we felt ready to go bigger. So we traded those in for larger properties. Mm. Okay. It's so funny. Just as an aside, I've noticed that, and I don't know why this is, but this is a fact. When I interview females who invest with their husband, it's we because they're inclusive of their husband. But a lot of times when I interview males and they're investing with their wives, it's I. (laughs) That's just a fact I've noticed across the board. Women usually include their husband, whereas men don't typically (laughs) include their wife when they're talking about investing. Now that you say it, you're right. You're right. Come on. Come on, guys. Let's go. All right. Well, now that I called out all the males who are married and investing with their significant others on the show, let's talk about these properties. So why are you focused on buying older properties? If they're buying holds, obviously the main thing that comes to mind is repairs and maintenance. So the newer the property, the less repairs and maintenance. Yeah. So where we were living at the time was in Salem, Massachusetts. And that city is as old as dirt. So that's kind of what you're getting over there. And those are the gems in the community are those historic homes. And I think you just need to learn to identify where you're going to have trouble. And it's mostly around electric and plumbing. But some of these older homes, especially the ones built in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they are rock solid. I think that when people are investing, a lot of times they get hung up in the cosmetics. And I always say, hey, like I'll take your 1920s house that hasn't been cosmetically updated over some hack job Home Depot upgrade any day. Because you know what you're getting into, especially like if you're buying a property in the 1960s, the pink bathrooms, the paneling, that's easy to fix. If the structure itself is solid, and maybe they've tackled some of the other big ticket items like the roof, the siding, the electrical, or the plumbing, then you might be in pretty good shape. Hmm. When you go into a property and, as you said, identify the areas where you'll have trouble, most likely electric and plumbing, how do you come up with a ballpark for how much you're going to have to put into it? That way you can adjust the price you offer for it. I kind of go into it expecting that there's going to be one big expense and which one do I want to tackle? So the big thing over here is do the properties for electric is their knob and tube. And I'll consider a house with knob and tube 
And what is that? It's outdated wiring. So it's considered a safety hazard with the type of wiring. They put it in, and then when they invented insulation, they started blowing that into the properties, and it created this fire hazard where the wire would start to fray and catch fire with the insulation. So a lot of the insurance companies don't cover it, and it's expensive to insure if you do have it. So something like that, it's not that I wouldn't buy the house with knob and tube, but I would want to make sure I could get it vacant so I could remedy the situation when it's free and clear of tenants because it can be a messy project of having to open up the walls and rewire and then patch everything. So when I'm going and assessing a property, it's a roof to me, that's not a huge deal. You can have someone come out and put on a new roof in a matter of a week or two. But some of these other projects are more invasive. And logistically, is that something that I can pull off? Mm. In terms of resale value, any of these big infrastructure items are going to boost your resale and just improve the property overall. And with me, I'm investing in these houses for the long term. So I'm okay with putting money in up front if it's going to carry me through the rest of my ownership. Let's talk about the numbers on the last buy and hold that you did. Can you tell us purchase price, renovation costs, and how much you're renting it for? Sure. I closed on a place about six weeks ago. We rewired the house. We upgraded all the heating systems, and we also brought in an additional meter for the electric and the heating systems. We painted, replastered the bulk of the house, and then we did some updates in the kitchen, just basic cabinets, countertops. So we got the house for four eighty, and then we put in about sixty thousand to get it ready. But we're gonna have this house for forty years. If I decided to condo off this property right now, I would probably put each of those condos on the market for two fifty, or I could resell it today. And I would probably put it on the market for six twenty. So that's kind of how I look at it. If I'm putting in this money, and if I have to get out of it tomorrow, am I going to lose my shirt? And if I'm not, if I'm still going to be in the green, then it makes sense to me. For rents, we'll be pulling in on average sixteen fifty to seventeen hundred for each of the units. There's three units. I was gonna say there has to be three because when you gave me if you're a condo off it and when I multiplied that by two the numbers didn't work. So I was like there's gotta be at least one more. Okay. So you have three units. Let's just call it seventeen hundred a unit. So that's fifty one hundred in rent and all in you're at f- around five hundred and forty thousand. So that's right at the one percent threshold when you look at the rent versus the all-in price. So you're right there. How's the area? Great. So that's what I look at. The 2% rule for this area I find is very challenging unless you're a cash buyer. So 1% is that rule. That's what I strive for. The area is great. I think there's an appreciation play there. I think there's a condo conversion For me, it's not just about the cash flow, but it's, I call it kind of the triple-headed monster. Is there cash flow, appreciation, and condo conversion? Mm, Interesting. Have you done a condo conversion? Not yet, but one of our properties, we ended up selling it as a multi, but it could have been sold off as two condos, but we had a buyer as a multi. 
Okay. What's the process since you're a real estate agent? I'm sure you know in converting a property into a condo. From a process standpoint, it's about partnering up with an attorney and writing up condo docs, the deed, putting together the association. But there's a little bit more to it from a resale standpoint. So if you're buying a multifamily and you want to have that approach in your pocket for the future, look at the area and see, okay, what are the other condos selling for? Do they have parking? Do they have outdoor space? In the city, in Boston, parking People don't expect that all the time, but in an area kind of on the outskirts, that's a big thing. And if you're buying a multifamily that only has one car parking or tandem parking, then how is that going to work down the road? So maybe it's not a great candidate for your condo conversion. So it's not that you can't do it, but is that the right property for you? Mm. You said that unless you're a cash buyer, it's a little bit challenging to get the 2%. And I've personally, when I was buying homes, I never got the 2%. And I was buying in Dallas-Fort Worth. I got to like 1.6% was the highest I got. And that was getting into a dicey area. The question I have after you said that was that implies in my mind that you're doing financing on these properties. So how are you financing them? It's pretty vanilla the way that we're financing. We are just doing 20 to 25% down. We have moved a lot. Actually, we've never been able to take advantage of just 20 for whatever reason. It's always been 25. (laughs) But I do work with clients sometimes and doing more creative financing solutions. So sometimes that could be an FHA or here in Massachusetts, we have the mass housing program, which is great. People here like, oh, I can just buy a, a two family and do an FHA. Yes and no, because where it's so competitive here, you're competing against other buyers that can put 20% down. So while from a financing standpoint, it might be feasible for you if you're going to owner-occupy the property, from the standpoint of this is really competitive and is your offer going to be taken seriously if you're only putting 35 to 5% down, maybe not so much. But those options are available to people if they're willing to sacrifice a little bit on location or on cosmetics and be kind of scrappy and very agile about getting their offers to the table. What lender do you use with your financing? Sometimes we'll work directly with a bank. We just closed on a place last week and we went with a commercial lender because they allowed us to do 20% down instead of 25. We weren't on the market. We weren't ready to buy a place, but this great property came on and we just couldn't afford 25, but we could pull it off with 20. So we worked with the bank and did a commercial loan. And those are a little bit tougher just because it's not a fixed rate 30 year. It's a variable loan. So after five years, we don't know what the rate's going to be at. And you also, if we were to pay off the house in the next five years, we'd be hit with a premium. Mm -hmm. So are they local banks, like portfolio lenders, like credit unions and, and community banks, or are they Bank of America, Chase type of banks? They're community banks. So I like building up the relationships with the community banks, but I have worked with a broker that works with a number of different lenders to source the options for us. Mm-hmm. I've had clients that have used credit unions, and I'm pretty flexible. I think... For the financing, that's really the part that my husband gets the most excited about, (laughs) which is actually 
uh, piece of advice that I have is I don't like the financing angle. He gets really excited about that, so I kind of let him have it. And that allows me to focus on some of the other stuff that I do like, like going out and looking at the properties. I manage all the renovations. I manage the tenants. So I know just enough about the financing to be dangerous, but I hear not you. like the intricacies that some people probably want to know about. Yeah, and that that's, seems to be the theme. And over the last week or so with guests I've interviewed, and myself included, we focus on the things we're really good at and we enjoy doing. And then we have business partners, in your case, your husband, but in other cases, business partners who focus on the other things they're good at. And then as we all focus on things we're really good at, then we all kind of rise collectively. So let's talk about you managing the tenants in your properties. You self-manage, clearly. What's a challenge you've come across self-managing? You have, I imagine, you have six homes. How many residents do you have? We have 18 units. Okay, 18 units. So you're managing 18 separate leases. So what's a challenge you've come across? I would say the main challenge that I've had over the years has been, ideally, I love to acquire properties that can be delivered vacant, but that can be hard because when you're buying a property, the current owners don't want to deal with that. So we have inherited tenants and I'll only inherit some tenants. I'm not at the point where I just don't care and I'll just, whatever, we'll figure it out. I'm kind of picky about what situation I want to get myself into. I've always said that I can deal with house problems. I don't like dealing with people problems, but we have inherited tenants. And the issue that we run into sometimes is they feel like they own the house and they feel like it's theirs and transitions in general are really hard, whether it's transitioning, we're buying a place or we have a new tenant move in. I'm on edge whenever we have a new tenant move into a unit because I know there's going to be calls the first month or two, just, hey, this sink doesn't drain or I'm worried that they're going to hate the apartment or something and then it's going to be a problem. But yeah, I think transitions in general is is usually the toughest point for me. And what have you done to attempt to resolve that or smooth it out as much as possible? With the older homes, I just set the tone from the beginning. Hey, guys, this house was built in 1850. The windows are solid wood. They're not replacements. Be careful lifting them up. They're a little shaky. I don't know if there's insulation. I don't know what the situation is there. And I just really kind of go through the list like this is not new construction. You're living in a piece of history here. So just be aware. If you want to live in new construction, I can introduce you to some properties down the street that were built in 2010. But if you want to have the experience of living in the downtown area in an older home, just heads up, this is what you're getting into. And I think just doing that from the beginning is so helpful in setting expectations. If you were given three extra hours a day and you had to spend it on your business, how would you spend that time? Oh, that's a good question. I think I spend too much time on my business and not enough time on myself. So I would take the three hours and I'm cheating. I'm cheating, right? (laughs) Um, Gosh, what would I be doing? Maybe another way to phrase it is what are the three most effective hours you spend on your business currently? Yeah. 
I think getting out and talking to people. I spend so much time on a computer. Actually, today is my last day at my regular marketing job. I also, for all this time, have been working full time in the tech world in marketing. And I spend so much just behind a computer screen, doing emails, talking on the phone. And if I had three hours, I would go set up a meeting with a, an attorney that I work with and just have a meeting, be better about building relationships with my team members that I lean on heavily. Congratulations on piecing out of your regular marketing job. That's a big move. What's the goal over the next couple years for your business? When we got serious about, hey, we're not just like buying randomly old properties, but this is a business. We set the goal of we're going to get 21 units and then we're going to stop and we're going to reassess where we're at in the situation. And by having that clear, distinct goal, we're just both working towards that and we're almost there. We got to pick off one more three family in Mm -hmm. the next year. Then we'll hit the goal and then it's, okay, do we like reassess? Do we still like real estate? Do we still like what we're doing? Do we want to pursue maybe flips? Do we want to continue to buy or what's the next step? Got it. So it's a focus towards the first milestone of 21 units and then you'll reassess and figure out what makes the most sense. Yeah. I think it's tough with real estate because a lot of it comes down to sometimes an ego thing, right? Or people ask like, how many units do you have? And a lot of people own like a thousand units. We're very specific and how many we wanted to purchase because we worked our way backwards and we said, this is how much money we want to make in real estate at this age, by this time, what's the least amount of work we have to do to get there? And what aspects of real estate do we enjoy? And, you know, we really like the old homes and we really love the towns where we invest and that's important to us. And 21 units is our number. Mm. So could we grow it and have hundreds of units by the time we're 40? Yeah, sure. But I just don't know if that's right for us. And, when you created that goal of reverse engineering, okay, I want to make X amount of dollars from these properties and we're going to buy 21 units to achieve that. Have you achieved the projected profits per property that you thought you'd achieve? Yes, we have. There's one wild card in our portfolio. We bought a three family in downtown Boston. So that was a pretty penny. And we spent a significant amount of money completely gutting and renovating it. The rationale was we kind of scraped by for several years, house hacking and living in our rentals. And we just wanted to buy something that was our own in the area we wanted to be. All of our friends are in this neighborhood and our family's close by. It just made a lot of sense. But it definitely derailed us a little bit because this was about us type of play instead of just to buy the books. But it's a huge opportunity. We got a great deal on it, hugely improved the value. And again, we could, if we needed to get out tomorrow, we would do very well. So at the end of the day, I live where I want to live. I'm surrounded by the people I care about most. And I live in my dream condo. And it's still a three family. So we still have tenants living below us. They're carrying our mortgage for us. I was about to say, I just did something similar with my fiance. But then you reminded me that it was a three family. I'm like, nope, I sure didn't. I wish, 
I wish it. I wish mine was a three family. We bought a house at market value, and it was in an area that we really like, and we can walk to restaurants, bars, to the park, all this wonderful stuff. Great school district, but from an investment standpoint, it probably will appreciate. But we're certainly buying with zero equity in it. But what I looked at, I didn't look at it from an investment standpoint because. I'm doing well with investing. I looked at it from a quality of life standpoint, and it's investment in quality of life, and that's also important to keep in mind. So I was like, I'm right there with you, but then you're like, and it's a three-family. I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> she one-upped me on that. That was the catch. It was like, if we're going to do it, we, it still needs to kind of fit with what we're trying to do. But you brought up a good point with it's not just about the financials. It's about the lifestyle. And that's a conversation that I have day in and day out with clients where they have a printout of the cash flow that they want to make on a property. And it's like, okay, well, do you want to live in a four family in an area that's not so great? And the more they think about the reality of it, it's like, you know, I got caught up in the numbers and you're right. I have a family, I have kids. That situation doesn't make sense and probably in the long run, it isn't what's right for us. Dana, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? I think we kind of talked about it earlier, but don't do stuff that you don't want to do. And sounds kind of counterintuitive because when you're first starting out, you want to give everything a try, right? But I've learned I really don't like something to try and outsource it, hand it off to someone and then focus on what I do like and amplify that. Yesterday I was doing my taxes and I'm like licking the stamps and everything smudged. I'm probably doing them wrong, <laughs> trying to get everything out by the deadline to my contractors. And it's like, what am I doing? My mm -hmm. accountant offers a service. It's not that expensive. Let's give it to her. She's going to do it right. It's going to be just take it off my plate. Absolutely. A recent interview I did, the gentleman compared it to school and how when we have six or seven classes, if we're making an A or B in a class, then the classes we're making a C or D in, our attention has to go towards those classes. And then we ultimately end up right in the middle with everything because we haven't been able to focus on the A stuff as much because having to compensate for the C and D stuff and we end up being average overall. Whereas when we focus on stuff we're really good at, then we can be all-stars in that. And in my case, it was chemistry that was a d and it should have always been a d which it kind of was but i was really good at other stuff so yeah great point and thanks for sharing that you ready for the best ever lightning round yes i'm ready first a quick word from our best ever partners remember to get your free deal analysis tool for your flips at fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever that's f-u-n-d-t-h-a-t-f-l-i-p.com forward slash best ever it will detail your scope of work, help you analyze if the project's profitable, and make a determination on the max purchase price. Fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, it is here. Well, it's almost here. February 24th and 25th. The conference, the best ever conference. Have you signed up yet? Oh, if you haven't, you better sign up right now. It's going to sell out. Besteverconference.com. I'm going to be there. A bunch of the guests who you've heard interviewed on the show are going to be there. Just go to besteverconference.com 
and look at all the speakers that you're going to hear from that will help you move your business forward in 2017. I want to meet you in person. The best ever guests who are speaking at this event want to meet you in person. And people who haven't been interviewed on this podcast who are speaking at the conference, they want to meet you in person. Go to besteverconference.com. All right, what's the best ever book you've read? The best ever book I ever read was Matilda. My first chapter book. And I'm a big Roald Dahl fan. It took me a year to read. I almost gave it up like 200 times throughout that year. But I've since read it probably seven times. And that is the... Was that supposed to be a real estate book? No. You... <laughs> no. I didn't say real estate book. Best ever book. Okay. I just Googled it. It was also a movie, I guess, right? With Danny DeVito as the director, as a comedy. Also a Broadway play that I okay, saw cool. this Christmas. Yeah. Yes, got it. All right, Matilda, best ever deal you've done. Well, you're going to have to talk to me in 20 years because all of mine are buy and hold. But Which one cash flows the most? They're all kind of the 1% rule. I would say the best ever type deal, well, the type of deal that I like to go after, I like to prey on bad marketing. As you see, marketing is my day job, so I have an eye for that. But you've seen the listings where it's like, so they took one picture of a house that looks like dingy gray with like their thumb in the way and then on the interior it's just a picture of the toilet and that's bad marketing right if the location's fine what's going on here is the house okay i think those are the best ever deals is trying to see past what's been presented and not look at what is but what could it be and i like to go after those best ever way you like to give back I'm trying to work something out with the local shelter. I got, we adopted our dog five years ago and she's great. And so I'm trying to set something up with the shelter where if I help buyers find a property in that area, part of my commissions goes back to the shelter. So finding yourself a forever home, finding your pets a forever home. What is the biggest mistake you've made in real estate investing? There's a couple not starting early enough, even though I I started young. When I was in college, it was the recession and it was a scary time. And no one was in my circle, I was 18, but no one was talking about investing in real estate. And I went to UMass, I could have picked off a two family there in Western Mass and I had the means to do it then. I was working full time in college and I could have my friends rent for me. There was opportunity there, but I wasn't aware. I didn't know that those opportunities existed. You work overseeing the renovations. What's something that you wish you would have done differently or that you've learned from overseeing renovations on these older homes? That's a good question. Um, Well, I guess this isn't for the older homes, but just kind of more generally, always get everything in writing. It's really easy to become lax when you build relationships with contractors and you think you know where their estimates are going to come in or you think you have an idea where they're going to come at. But I recently made the mistake where I didn't get something in writing and these are guys that I've worked with before and they just totally hosed me. And looking back on it, it was like, why don't we sign something? Why don't we put a timeline in place? Like, We had it very loose. It's just so easy to do that when you think you know people or think you've got a good relationship. But no matter what, don't do stuff on a spit and a handshake. Expensive projects, at least. What's the best place the best ever listeners can get in touch with you? 
Email is definitely the best way. You can contact me through the website. It's DanaBullRealtor.com, or you can shoot me an email. It's on my website. Cool. And best ever listeners, that website URL is also in the show notes. Dana, thank you for being on the show, talking about how you are investing in homes as old as 1784 and as shiny new as 1915, how you're mitigating the risk on investing in those homes by proactively looking at what type of trouble you anticipate having. And two areas that you focus in on are electric and plumbing, and then how you set expectations with your tenants about them being older homes and the windows and insulation and focusing on the location versus not being new construction. And then ultimately how you don't do stuff you don't want to do because that doesn't set you or the company up for success, but you focus on stuff that you want to do and you thrive at doing. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Best ever listeners, it is here. Well, it's almost here. February 24th and 25th, the conference, the best ever conference. Have you signed up yet? Oh, if you haven't, you better sign up right now. It's going to sell out. Besteverconference.com. I'm going to be there. A bunch of the guests who you've heard interviewed on the show are going to be there. Just go to besteverconference.com and look at all the speakers that you're going to hear from that will help you move your business forward in 2017. I want to meet you in person. The best ever guests who are speaking at this event want to meet you in person. And people who haven't been interviewed on this podcast who are speaking at the conference, they want to meet you in person. Go to besteverconference.com.